Well, I'm going to be preaching from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, a few short but very precious verses that I trust many of you are familiar with. Uh, And as you turn there, if you don't have a Bible, then uh, it's on page 766 of the Pew Bible. And uh, as you turn there, I just want to thank you all for the privilege of being able to worship with you this morning and the privilege, the honor of being able to share God's word with you. Uh, It really is uh, humbling and it's not something I take lightly. Uh, And I also just want to thank uh, all of you for the opportunity to worship together Uh, and especially those up front leading our time of worship. But it's the congregational, Paul's, Paul's, he's good, but the congregational voice, uh, that is wonderful and it's beautiful, and I trust that is a pleasing sound in the Lord's ears as well. Uh, so why don't we prepare our hearts for the reception, the reading and reception of God's holy word. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we thank you that you so graciously and so kindly have sent your Son, and he calls us to come uh, with all of our faults and failures, all of our sinfulness, all of our corruption, and yet we come to the one who is holy and righteous and altogether perfect, and we are unhindered. We can come because of what he's done for us. So I pray that even now you'd be calling your people, calling those who perhaps even at this very moment aren't your people, and that you'd be calling them to yourself to come to find refreshment, to find joy, to find peace and contentment uh, in the wonderful Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everyone loves receiving an invitation. We can probably all remember a time, even as a child, being invited to a birthday party or some other event. We can all probably remember at some point the disappointment of not being invited. Even if we don't plan on going, we still want to be Invited. An invitation is a symbol of being accepted, being welcomed, being included, being loved. What good news is then that here in Matthew 11, we have an invitation from the Lord of life. But we, as we all know, every invitation is not only from someone, but it's also to someone, and it is for something. So here in Matthew 11, 28, and following, we have an invitation for weary pilgrims from the lowly king and for gospel rest. And so those are the basic components of the text. Weary pilgrims, a lowly king, and gospel rest. And if you get nothing else from this morning, if you're just on the verge of tuning out, then just hear this one sentence at least, that Jesus Christ came not to demand work from you, 
but to offer rest to you. And that is good news. So we'll begin by simply asking the question, who is this invitation for? Jesus begins in verse 28, Come to me, who? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This invitation is directed towards weary pilgrims, for those laboring who who feel weighed down by the burdens of life. And there are at least two categories of people that come to my mind as I think about this invitation. There are religious workers and worldly washouts. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, you get some people who are religious workers. They're going to spend their whole life relating, relating to God as their employer. They're commandment keepers and rule followers. They're going to cross all their religious T's and dot all their religious I's. This was life for Martin Luther. When Martin Luther was 22, he was riding on horseback to his university. He got caught in a thunderstorm. There was a strike right next to him. And he vowed to God, if you spare me, I will serve you the rest of my life and become a monk. Well, God did spare him. And Luther, true to his word, forsook all his education to become a lawyer and became a monk instead to the great consternation of his father. And most people would think, ah, so that's how Martin Luther became a Christian. Wow, not at all. That's how Martin Luther became a religious worker. Luther, reflecting on his time in the monastery, famously said, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. And he's not exaggerating when he says he would have killed himself. Luther wore out the priests with endless sessions of confession, daily sins being confessed for hours on end, leaving the confession booth only to return immediately after. And the priests were just tired of Luther coming again and again. And so they recommended that he would pursue more education because he had too much time for introspection. So he studied and studied and eventually became a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. And reflecting on that time, he said, well, when I was a monk, I was unwilling to omit any of the prayers. But when I was busy with public lecturing and writing, I often accumulated my appointed prayers for a whole week or even two or three weeks. Then I would take a Saturday off or shut myself in as long as three days without food and drink until I had said the prescribed prayers. This made my head split, and as a consequence, I could not close my eyes for five nights, lay sick unto death, and went out of my senses. And although Luther is certainly an extreme case, the world is filled with religious workers like Luther. They make a deal with God, and they say, if you bless me, then I will serve you. And God is their employer. And after having done their labor, they demand their wages. In the parable of the prodigal son, this is the older brother. He's out in the field working when he hears the sounds of this great feast, the celebration for his younger brother. And when he hears, he he joins the party and celebrates, right? No. Luke 15 says, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. 
But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Do you hear that attitude? I served you. I never disobeyed. And you haven't rewarded me. You haven't given me my wages. And some people in this category will create an artificial standard of righteousness that they can fulfill and they spend their whole lives patting themselves on their back with a smug sense of self-righteousness because they have filled all the boxes and and checked on their due diligence. And that was the the Pharisees in in Jesus' day. But today it could be something like, I got baptized. I'm a member of the church. I attend regularly. I go to Bible study. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm a good Christian. Therefore, God owes me. He, He owes me these things. And when something difficult happens... They respond like the older brother. These many years I have served you, God, and this is how you repay me? However, others in this category, like Luther, eventually come to the end of themselves. And by the grace of God and the conviction of the Spirit, they realize that no matter how hard they try, that they can never solve the problem of their own sin. They can never purify the corruption of their hearts. They can never fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And so finally, after coming to an end of themselves, they give up any hope of meriting God's favor by their works, and they look to Christ as a sinner whose only hope is undeserved grace. And could you imagine then the joy that filled Luther's heart when after 10 years of life like this, agonizing every day over how he could finally get rid of his sin to discover that the Bible actually teaches that one is justified by faith apart from works. Could you imagine the peace that washed over his soul when he heard the words of his Savior afresh for the first time with an understanding of the gospel, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. If there was ever a soul that was heavy laden, it was Martin Luther. And what a kind word this is to the religious worker striving day after day, month after month, year after year to be good enough, to be righteous enough. And Jesus comes and says, come, Come to me and I will give you by my grace the rest that you could never earn by your works. Are any of you in that category today? Perhaps you are a believer and you struggle with the inclination to relate to God as an employer who you seek to get your wages from. Thinking that if you just work hard enough, If you're just good enough, that maybe you'll get your rest later on. I would say, parents, are you implicitly or explicitly raising your children to think and function like this? Are they trying to get your approval by being good enough? And then trying to earn God's approval by that pattern, by being good enough? Or are you teaching them to treasure Christ who loved them when they weren't good enough. And children, you need to understand that God is not a boss 
looking to hire the very best workers. God is not a teacher who only receives the very best students. He is a savior who delights in calling to himself dropouts, failures. That's who Christianity is for, burdened, heavy-laden people. That's who this invitation is for. But there's also another category on the other side of the extreme, and I just came up with worldly washouts. That's the prodigal son himself. This is the one who throws off all restraint. They disregard God. They defy all authority. They say religion is a yoke. It's a burden. It's shackles that keeps me from doing the things that I really want to do. I will find my rest in earthly pleasure, success, sensuality, food, money, whatever it might be. This is what they live for. And certainly in our Western culture, this is more predominant than the former. And in the same way, for some people, this kind of works out to some degree. They achieve some level of pleasure and joy in this life. Life's not perfect, but it's good enough for them along the way. But for others, like the prodigal son, they simply come to an end of themselves. That might be the drug addict on the street who finds himself in a homeless shelter, or that might be the ultra-successful person who gets to the mountaintop and realizes that it still doesn't satisfy. In either case, they've tried to do life on their own, and it just hasn't worked out. You come to a place where you're burdened, either by the consequences of your failure or by the emptiness of your success. And this can happen for Christians too. We slip into patterns of life where our focus is more centered on self, more centered on the things of the world, and we get more and more busy trying to get more and more things, and we get less and less satisfied. And we become more and more restless, experiencing less and less rest in Christ. And so whether it's the law keeper or the libertine, whether it's the self-righteous or the self-indulgent, what a gracious offer we have that Christ addresses us, whatever the root cause might be, and says, are you weary today? Are you burdened? Come to me, and I will give you the thing that you can never obtain by your own wisdom or by your own righteousness. Now, who is this invitation from? From Christ, the lowly king. Verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And this verse is so glorious, I just don't even know where to start. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. And I think There's probably an emphasis in my own teaching and preaching on the transcendence of God and the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, because I think it's something that in our evangelical culture is often neglected or sometimes even outright despised. And one of the tragedies of that is that when you come to a passage like this that is unimaginably glorious, it's just assumed and taken for granted. Well, of course, Jesus is gentle and lowly. Of course, everybody knows that. Jesus is my homeboy. He's, Jesus is kind and, and gentle. But if you actually know who Christ is in Scripture, this is astonishing testimony that he gives concerning himself. 
Well, why is this so spectacular that Jesus would say that he's gentle and lowly? Well, just look around at the immediate context of Matthew 11. In verses 20 to 24, Jesus is declaring judgment on unrepentant cities. He says in verse 24, But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on that day for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus, in verse 25, Jesus rejoices in sovereign, unconditional election, that salvation is hidden from the wise and the understanding and revealed to little children. Verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. This Jesus himself is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority, all power, all dominion belong to him. He goes on in verse 27, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. A saving knowledge of the Father depends upon the sovereign choice of the Son. And if we go outside the context of Matthew 11, we could reach all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, a famous passage that most of us are familiar with. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is one who is too holy, too transcendent, too glorious for angels to look upon. They feel the need to cover themselves in the presence of his Searching holiness. And you might think, well, yeah, Sam, but that's, that's in the Old Testament. Isn't that talking about God the Father? Well, not according to John. Because in John 10, he quotes Isaiah 6. And John says that Isaiah saw these things, sorry, he said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Colossians 1.16 We read, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Is that sinking in that all things were created through him and for him? Everything that exists, exists for the glory of Christ. Not only in the work of creation, but in the work of redemption. Colossians 1 goes on in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Everything that exists, exists for the ultimate purpose of displaying the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. That's who Jesus is. And now do you see the wonder 
that this eternal, infinite creator, by whom and for whom all things are made, approaches his creation and says, Come to me. I'm gentle and lowly. How can you not worship a God like that? There is no personage in all of history or literature, real or imagined, that even approaches the uniqueness and the beauty and the glory of the person of Christ. And we are all so one-dimensional. We're just so small and finite in the range of our character and attributes. And the imagined gods of men are the same way. Even the Muslim idea of God, which is just a perversion of the Judeo-Christian faith, is still inevitably one-dimensional compared with the true God of Scripture. Allah is pictured as being transcendent, but He's never imminent. He's never close. He does not draw near to His creation and reveal Himself personally and relationally and intimately. He certainly would never say, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. But our God does. There is none like Him. And again, just behold this contrast one more time in the immediate context. Verse 27, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Parallels the things that Jesus himself says in uh, John chapter 5, claiming that he's one with the Father. All power and authority is his. All dominion. Jesus is king of everything. And then verse 29, he says, And I, this one who's been given all authority, am gentle and lowly in heart. Have you ever even heard of humble majesty? Where have you seen the idea of the lowly king? On the one hand, Jesus is furious when traitors desecrate the temple, turning the house of God into a den of thieves and a marketplace. On the other hand, Jesus is gentle and compassionate with prostitutes, tax collectors, and a Samaritan woman with a history of five husbands. And yet, whatever he does, it's always appropriate and fitting for the situation. His compassion doesn't make him soft, and his zeal for justice doesn't make him harsh. He does all things well. And if you're willing to humble yourself this morning, he says to each and every one of us, come to me and I'll give you rest. And what's that invitation for? As I just alluded to, we'll circle back and just read it all together again. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And really we see two components of the invitation. There are the instructions and there is the benefit, the promise. And the instruction is threefold. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. And the benefit he promises is sweet gospel rest, which is stated in verse 28 and then repeated in verse 29. 
And I say gospel rest because it's clear that Jesus is lifting our eyes above the earthly. In verse 29, he says, you will find rest for your souls. And certainly the physical and the spiritual can be related because that's how God created us. Sometimes the earthly physical burdens of life, whether that be sickness or chronic fatigue or just being overworked, can be the the stimulus that prompts us and brings us to an awareness of our need for a deeper kind of rest, a spiritual rest. However, the problem is clearly more than being overworked. And the solution that Jesus offers is more than a sabbatical. It is an invitation to sweet gospel rest. It is a fundamental recognition that we do not have the ability to find and to obtain true and lasting rest for ourselves. We cannot earn it by our works, and we cannot find it in the world. It is something that Jesus alone can offer. And to the weary or the searching soul, Jesus says, I will give you that rest. It's in me, and it's in me alone that you can find what you are seeking. And so what does rest for your soul mean? One way of summarizing it, I would say, is it means that you can live all of your days, the rest of your life, with the confident assurance that God delights in you, that God is not angry with you, that you do not need to do anything in order to obtain God's favor, that you don't need to spend the rest of your life striving to get something before God. But understand that the only reason that Jesus can make such an invitation to sinners is because he would live the life that was perfectly meritorious of God's favor. He did fulfill the righteous requirement of the law such that he deserved eternal life. Christ did measure up to God's standard in all the ways that we don't. And yet, after living the life that we should have lived, Christ willingly goes to the cross to receive the punishment for our sin so that we might receive the blessing of his righteousness. And this promise, like every other promise, depends upon the substitutionary death of Christ in the place of sinners. As Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So you can know that God is not angry with you. You can know that God's favor rests upon you. And the only reason you can know that is because his anger was poured out on Christ. It was because on the cross, Christ was forsaken so that you could be reconciled as a son. You can know that God delights in you, not because you are so inherently virtuous and delightful, but because when you come to Christ by faith, you receive the very righteousness of Christ, the perfect son, in whom God is well pleased. And if your position before God is once and for all determined and settled by the finished work of another, it means you can finally rest. 
You can finally rest secure in the good pleasure of God upon your life. And this is why Jesus can address each and every one of us as sinners and say, I've done everything required. I've removed every obstacle. I've made every provision so that you can have rest, the rest that you could never obtain on your own. And here is what you must do. Number one, he says, come to me. As we've been so wonderfully singing this morning, all these, not only songs, but all throughout Scripture, exhortations to come to Christ. It's not enough to have an intellectual knowledge that Jesus existed or even that Jesus died and rose again. You must actually go to him in faith, confessing your sin, trusting that he is who he claims to be, that he really can pardon your sin, that he really can provide eternal life and eternal rest for you. It means going to God and saying in the words of an old hymn, Not the labors of my hand can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is the attitude by which we come to Christ, acknowledging that we have nothing, that Christ has done everything. But we don't stop. Even at coming, there are instructions that Christ gives. He says, learn of me. He says, take my yoke upon you. And upon first glance, you might say, wait, so I'm supposed to find rest By taking a yoke upon me. Isn't a yoke the very symbol of hard work and labor? But you'll notice that each of these instructions, there's a corresponding explanation. And it's through these explanations that these commandments are transformed from law, commandments of the law, to invitations of the gospel, inviting us into a deeper rest. Learn of me. Why is that not just a a command, further command that we feel the burden to obey? For I am gentle and lowly. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's by these explanations that the commands are transformed into invitations. To learn of Christ is itself an invitation to rest because he is the lowly king who is merciful towards sinners. And the more you learn of him, the more you can experience the endless ocean of his compassion and his grace towards us. The more you see that he is strong in all the ways that we are weak. He was successful in all the ways that we have failed. He is sufficient in all the ways that we are lacking. To take his yoke upon you is to enter into rest Because it's Christ who has already done all the work. When Christ offers to be yoked together with him, he's not looking for someone strong who will help him carry the load. He's looking for someone weak for whom he can be strong. And that doesn't mean that there's no doing in the Christian life. But you do it by grace, 
by the, the very grace and the strength that He Himself provides. And it's not because you're trying to get something, but because you already have something in Him. I mean, Paul frames it so paradoxically almost in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul really did work. He really did labor with all his might. He toiled. And yet for the Christian, there is an ever-present understanding that whatever I do, I do by his grace anyways. So it can't possibly be earning me anything. It's already been given to me as a gift. So how could I possibly repay him with what he has already given me? And to put it concisely, in other religions and in false Christianity, you work towards the rest, hoping that one day you get it. You spend your life working hard, saving up, so that if you accumulate enough good works, you can cash it in and enjoy rest in eternity. But in biblical Christianity, you work from a place of rest, presently experiencing all the benefits, not as the reward of your righteousness, but as the gift of his grace. And then to be sure, the Christian works, the Christian labors. But as Jesus himself says, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's there with you in the yoke, pulling And when you get justification by faith, your obedience is then transformed. God does not love you because you measure up and have earned it. Because you haven't measured up and you haven't earned it. And yet for those who are trusting in Christ, He really does love you. And He really does take pleasure in you. He delights in you. And it's His good pleasure to do good to you as His children whom He loves And it's not because you've obeyed enough. It's not because of your obedience at all, but despite your disobedience. And when we get that, we're free. We're free to work. We're free to labor. We're free to worship. We're free to obey. Not as some kind of strings attached deal that we've made with God, that if I do my part, you have to do your part. Not hoping that we get something one day, but simply because we already have received everything in Christ. And then we can just worship Him because He's worthy of our worship, because He's good, because He's faithful, and He's kind. You really can rest in Christ. Christ really meant it when He said it's finished. There's nothing that you're going to improve upon. There's nothing that you're going to add to the finished work of the cross. And if you're really trusting in Christ today, understand that God did not set his love upon you because he looked down the corridor of time and saw how good and faithful you would be. He loved you because he loved you. It was his good pleasure to set his love upon you. And if that doesn't bring a sense of security and confidence, a place where you can rest in him, I don't know what will. And perhaps you're on the the other side, on the outside looking in this morning. And I would simply highlight to you that this Jesus invites you to come to him and to trust him. This same Jesus, who's the sovereign creator, through whom and for whom all things were made, 
took upon himself the form of a servant, was humbled to death, even death on a cross, so that you might come to him and find rest. There is nothing that hinders anyone from coming this morning other than our own pride and our own sinful desires. And so I don't know what you might be going through this morning. I don't know the fatigue you might be feeling or the exhaustion you might be experiencing. Uh, Earlier I mentioned self-righteous and the self-indulgent, but there are all sorts of reasons that we might just feel the burdens of life being heavy laden. And know that this morning, again, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, Christ comes and he offers you rest. That we can find peace and contentment and joy that the world cannot offer. And it's not for a price that can be paid. It's not as a reward that you have earned. He offers it as a gift by his grace. So I would exhort you to come again today, even as we sing, especially as we take the Lord's Supper, to come to Him, trusting, finding your rest in Him. Learn of Him. He's gentle and lowly. He's strong and mighty. Take His yoke upon you. Because in uniting yourself to Him, you unite, unite yourself to the One who is able to make all grace abound to you, So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you so graciously offer us rest. And Lord, we've come from a place of sin and rebellion Maybe it was self-indulgence. Maybe it was self-righteousness in trying to prove ourselves. But Lord, I thank you and praise you that there is this morning gathered a people for your own possession who you've called out of the world and called into uh, life and relationship with you and into a place of rest where we can come to you uh, knowing that everything has been accounted for. Every obstacle has been removed so that we can have fellowship Uh, with the one true God, and our sin has been dealt with. Lord, I just pray that whatever people might be going through this morning, that they'd come to experience uh, a deeper and richer rest in Christ, uh, and that it would be sweeter, that it would be more full, uh, that it would be so much bigger than the burdens that they are experiencing in this life. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us, and uh, we praise you and In light of all this, Lord, we want to worship you, and we want to work for you and serve you all of our days. Uh, We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.